Capital Market Insights from ICMA. I'm Paul Richards, Head of Market Practice and Regulatory Policy at ICMA. This podcast is about the transition from US dollar LIBOR to SOFA in the bond market. The background is that Panel Bank US dollar LIBOR ceased publication on the 30th of June as planned. The FCA, as global regulator of LIBOR, has provided for synthetic dollar LIBOR to be published for legacy transactions, including bonds, until the 30th of September 2024. Synthetic dollar LIBOR provides a temporary bridge for legacy bonds to be transitioned from LIBOR to SOFA, the US dollar risk-free rate. To explain the implications, I'm joined by experts in four leading law firms. Catherine Wade of Linklaters is going to speak about fallbacks in floating rate notes under English law. Julia Machin of Clifford Chance is going to speak about consent solicitations under English law. Marcus McKenzie of Freshfields is going to speak about securitizations, including negative consents under English law. Amanda Thomas and Patrizia Pascalini of Allen and Overy are going to speak about the relationship between transition under English law, the US LIBOR Act, and other foreign laws. And Neil Palander of Linklaters is going to speak about operational issues during the transition. We at ICMA are very grateful to all of these experts for their contributions. But I need to emphasize that their contributions do not represent legal advice. So I'm Catherine Wade from Linklaters, and today I'm going to provide an overview of contractual fallback provisions in English law governed floating rate notes and the implications of the cessation of the last settings of panel bank LIBOR and the temporary publication of certain settings of US dollar LIBOR in an unrepresentative synthetic form. I'm going to describe three main types of fallbacks. A word of warning, this categorization of fallback provisions is for convenience only and doesn't describe the full detail and every formulation. So careful consideration of the specific provisions of each contract will be necessary. So starting with what we'll refer to as type one, this is historic drafting intended for temporary cessation of a reference rate which is triggered on the non-availability of the rate on a screen on the relevant interest determination date. The operation of this fallback usually involves a dealer polling mechanism. Now, dealer polling is not expected to yield any results when a currency tenor pair of the relevant underlying benchmark ceases permanently. Neil Palander at Linklaters is going to cover this further later in today's podcast. The final fallback for these type ones is typically to the rate applied to the previous interest period. In the event of permanent cessation of a rate, this will result in the bond becoming a fixed rate bond. So that's type ones. Moving on to type twos. These are contractual fallbacks developed or adopted since the end of 2017, approximately, or early 2018. And these were drafted in contemplation of the permanent cessation of LIBOR. 
These fallbacks are triggered on the permanent cessation of the relevant currency tenor pair of the underlying benchmark. And once triggered, they will require the issuer or its appointee to determine the applicable successor or alternative rate and an adjustment spread based upon certain objective parameters in the contract. In English law governed debt issuance programme documentation, contractual fallbacks are usually drafted as benchmark and currency agnostic. And so it's unlikely that they will refer to SOFA directly for cessation of US dollar LIBOR. And so they'll require the determination of the replacement rate and the applicable spread adjustment, but also the form of SOFA and any applicable conventions. The determination is going to typically be based upon the recommendation or statement of the relevant nominating body for the currency or the prevailing market approach for international debt securities or similar. Now, moving on to type three fallbacks, these are very similar to type two, but they contain a form of pre-cessation trigger. This would usually be an official statement that the relevant currency tenor pair is no longer representative. So the US dollar LIBOR settings most commonly used in bonds, i.e. the one, three and sixth month US dollar LIBOR, are now, since the 30th of June, being published in a synthetic form. That synthetic form consists of the term SOFA reference rate published by CME, plus the respective ISDA fixed spread adjustment. And these synthetic rates are intended to be published temporarily only until the end of September 2024. The FCA has stated that synthetic LIBOR is unrepresentative and its use is prohibited under the UK benchmarks regulation unless expressly permitted. Use has been permitted for all legacy contracts other than clear derivatives. Publication of the relevant settings in synthetic form pursuant to the UK benchmarks regulation and as supported by amendments pursuant to the Critical Benchmarks Act mean that type one and type two fallbacks, so those without the pre-cessation triggers, have not been triggered subject always to careful consideration of the specific drafting of the contractual terms. The UK Benchmarks Regulation empowers the FCA to direct the publication of synthetic LIBOR and the Critical Benchmarks Act supports contractual continuity for legacy contracts. The legislation is benchmark and currency agnostic and so it's intended to be applicable to US dollar LIBOR in the same way as it was to sterling LIBOR and to Japanese yen LIBOR. Note, however, that the governing law of the contract may also be relevant here and where the contract is not governed by English law, parties will also need to consider applicable rules of contractual interpretation in the relevant jurisdiction. Amanda and Patricia from Allen and Overy are going to pick up on some of the detail of that later on in the podcast. Bonds with type three fallback drafting, that's where the contract provides for the fallback to operate if the underlying benchmark is stated to be unrepresentative, will have been triggered by the cessation of publication of US dollar LIBOR in panel bank form and FCA statements that synthetic US dollar LIBOR is not representative. However, contractual fallbacks for bonds with type one and type two fallbacks will operate from the cessation of publication of synthetic LIBOR. 
The applicable fallback rate in each case is going to depend on the provisions of the contract. Um, so it's worth noting that this might result in a rate that's different from the party's expectations and or a rate which creates or increases a mismatch with other related funding, for example, swaps. This may be particularly acute for bonds with type one fallbacks because the contract doesn't have an effective mechanism to move to an alternative rate. Neil Palander is going to talk further shortly about some of the practical aspects applicable to the operation of fallbacks. So I'm going to hand over now to Julia Machin from Clifford Chance and Julia is going to talk about consent solicitations under English law. I am Julia Machin from Clifford Chance and in this segment, as Catherine said, I want to focus on consent solicitations. First, a brief introduction. It's important to emphasise that a consent solicitation is a contractual solution. And as a recap, it's where the issuer reaches out to bondholders and asks them to vote to agree to the issuer varying the terms of the bonds. In this case, by consenting to a proposed new interest rate. And I think it's worth pointing out that it will not be feasible either for a fiscal agent or if there is one, a bond trustee, to agree to any new rate. It's the bondholders themselves that will need to be approached. And the final introductory item to say is that I'm talking here about English law bonds. As Amanda and Patricia will mention later, consent solicitations under New York law bonds are not really feasible. So the first point I want to make is that consent solicitations will still be relevant for many of these English law tough legacy bonds that Catherine Wade has mentioned, even if they are able to make use of synthetic US dollar LIBOR. And that's because the synthetic rate is only a temporary rate. It's designed as a stopgap only to buy more time for issuers to transition away from US dollar LIBOR and through to an alternative rate. And in fact, the temporary rate will cease altogether next September. So aside from the fact that regulators such as the UK FCA are still actively encouraging issuers to transition, the cutoff date and this short window are very practical imperatives for issuers to act. And if issuers have bonds that mature beyond September 2024, they will need to be focusing on consent solicitations. There are a few other things I'd like to address in relation to consent solicitations. One of them relates to the choice of a future replacement rate. Now, I've mentioned that this is a contractual solution. And so, accordingly, there's more freedom for the issuer to select the replacement rate. The most likely candidate will be a version of SOFA, the US dollar LIBOR replacement rate. And given that US dollar LIBOR was a forward-looking rate and that synthetic US dollar LIBOR is similarly based on a term rate, some issuers may be tempted to think of term SOFA. But I just want to mention that although the issuer has a freedom of choice, as I've mentioned, there is some guidance from industry bodies as to how the rate should be used. And 
In particular, the ARC Working Group in the United States has some recommendations about when term SOFA and other types of SOFA should be used for products. And separately, in the UK, the FCA has recently confirmed in its 3 July announcements its view that issuers should not be using so-called credit-sensitive rates. Another point to be conscious of when undertaking a consent solicitation relates to timing. And the message here is to act early. The interest rate is obviously an integral part of the bond and therefore the quorum that is required for a meeting is usually relatively high. It will therefore be important to build in extra time into the process to allow for the potential that the initial meeting may need to be adjourned for a subsequent vote at a later date where typically a lower quorum will apply. And even if an issuer is working with a bond with a slightly lower voting threshold or one where the consent is being sought by written resolution, the message from the regulators is to continue to press ahead with consent solicitations in good time and that advice remains valid. So in short, issuers would be well advised not to be trying to squeeze through the process next summer. And then the final point I want to make is to highlight a nuance with regard to US investors. Now, with any significant change of terms, one question that needs to be asked is whether or not the revision is such that a new security is being created. I think it's fair to say that the market consensus under English law is that a change of interest rate, albeit significant, and one where a high threshold of agreement is required, will not result in a new security. And for example, with regard to bank bonds, regulators have acknowledged that such a switch should not prejudice their capital treatment. But there is a wrinkle to mention with regard to US investors. And without going into detail, in the States, there's slightly more of a concern that a change of rate might equate to an offer of a new security. That has a knock-on effect for how consent solicitations are managed. And it's typical to state that the issuer won't implement the resolution unless the quorum and the voting thresholds have been satisfied by non-US investors, such that any US votes are not determinative of the outcome. So that's a very high level overview of some factors to consider for consent solicitations, but it highlights a few of the issues to bear in mind. There are some additional nuances to think about for securitizations, and I'll hand over to Marcus to talk about those. Thank you, Julia. Yes, I'm Marcus McKenzie, a partner at Freshers Brookhouse Derringer in the securitization team, and I'm going to talk about English law governed US dollar LIBOR bonds transitioning in the context of English law securitizations. So when looking at legacy US dollar LIBOR linked bond in English law governed securitizations, we generally have to consider two key pools of transactions. One, older deals issued before the 2017 FCA announcement, which will typically contain the type one fallbacks that Catherine has already de described. And two, deals that following the 2017 announcement 
included additional language in the bond terms and conditions, allowing for a special process for amending the benchmark rate which the bonds refer to. We refer to this special process as a negative consent mechanic, and I will explain it in more detail shortly. Note that in the traditional RMBS, ABS securitization market, the inclusion of type two and type three fallbacks into documentation post July 2017 was not commonly done. Negative consent language for amending the terms and conditions was typically included alongside a standard type one fallback, which Julia and Catherine have mentioned already. Investors in the securitization market would not accept baked in amendment processes that did not require at least an opportunity for them to refuse the suggested alternative rate. For those older securitizations that just have type one fallback language, the same considerations will apply as have already been explained by Catherine. Synthetic US dollar LIBOR will be referenced in place of panel bank US dollar LIBOR until that rate is no longer published or a successful consensusitation is concluded to change the benchmark rate in the terms and conditions of the bonds. Once synthetic US dollar LIBOR is switched off permanently, if a successful consensusitation has not been completed, the relevant bonds will effectively become fixed rate at the last synthetic US dollar LIBOR rate set for the relevant bonds. Consensusitations for securitizations with type one fallbacks would work largely in the same way as Julia has just described, although there are some additional complications for securitizations. Given the multiple tranches and classes of bondholders in a typical securitization structure, and also given that a change in the interest rate would in many transactions constitute a basic terms modification, an issuer would typically need to get the consent of all other classes and tranches of bonds in the transaction, not just the US dollar class, in order to effect the US tran dollar transition. We have found that it can be challenging to get investors who are not directly affected by such a change to engage with the process. And so this does, in theory, increase the risk of failure in relation to transition for US dollar tranches. Where the transaction contains interest rate hedging, then the SOP documentation may also need to be amended with consent from these relevant SOP counterparties, depending on how those swaps were drafted, which again adds the potential for additional friction into the process. Turning to the negative consent mechanic in post-2017 transactions, where this mechanic is provided for, a full consensusitation is not required for benchmark rate modification, so long as certain conditions are satisfied. To use the mechanism, the issuer has to notify bondholders of its intention to switch on alternative benchmark rate plus adjustment spread, and the proposed change will go ahead as long as the trustee does not receive objections from 10% or more of the bondholders within the prescribed period. A recent example of this is the Eurosale 2006-2BL deal, which successfully completed a negative consent process during June of 2023. They proposed compounded daily SOFA plus the ISDA fallback spread adjustment. If 10% or more do object, then either the issuer can start the negative consent process again with a new proposal, or it will be required to undertake a full consensusitation process along the lines which Julia summarised.
The negative consent transition mechanic typically provided for amendments to relevant swaps being undertaken at the same time. Prescribed conditions for use of this negative consent mechanic include the occurrence of certain trigger events, such as an official announcement of the cessation of the benchmark rate. The proposed alternative rate being one of a prescribed set of options, such as one recommended by the relevant authorities. And no statement from the relevant rating agencies that such an amendment could cause a downgrade. The triggers are fairly widely drafted, so in most cases will have already been hit by the authorities announcements. So most issuers should already be able to start work on a transition process once comfortable with their alternative rate proposals. But again, the specific drafting in the relevant documentation must be checked as they do all vary. The drafting evolved over time between the 2017 announcement and the new issuance market switching to SOFA. AFME formulated model language to use in securitizations around the negative consent mechanic, but there were often variations made in transaction documentation. As a more general comment, the number of English law governed securitizations which have outstanding US dollar tranches is relatively small, and so there have been few examples of transitions being undertaken which have been uh, happened to date, apart from the Eurosale deal mentioned earlier. It may also be the case that certain securitization issuers already took care of the US dollar transition when undertaking their sterling LIBOR transition a year or two ago, where they had to a type one fallback only because they were having to go to bondholders anyway to deal with their sterling LIBOR transition. And with that, I'm going to hand over now to Amanda and Patricia. Thanks, Marcus, and hello to everyone. I'm Amanda Thomas. I'm head of the London International Capital Markets Practice at Allen and Overy. So far, uh, the focus in this podcast has been on English law governed bonds. Patrizia and I will now be considering the impact of other governing laws on the transition of legacy US dollar LIBOR bonds. We're going to focus on US law, and that's because most legacy US dollar LIBOR bonds are understood to be English law governed or US and in fact typically New York law governed. As Catherine mentioned, the governing law of the bonds can be relevant in the determination of whether synthetic US dollar LIBOR applies. And this is the case for US gov law governed bonds as the US has implemented a statutory solution, the LIBOR Act, to assist with the transition of US bonds referencing US dollar LIBOR. So depending on the terms of the relevant bond, where that bond is US law governed, the LIBOR Act may apply instead of synthetic LIBOR. For the sake of completeness, Patrizia will also briefly mention how LIBOR bonds which are governed by the law of an EU state are transitioning. Now, just before we get into the detail, we wanted to note that, as you might be able to tell from our accents, we are not US qualified lawyers and we are only providing high level observations based on our understanding of US law matters further to discussion with our Allen and Overy US colleagues. We wanted to quickly mention a couple of points on LIBOR experience so far. The first is to note that tough legacy US law LIBOR bonds are difficult to transition by way of consent solicitation because US bonds typically require unanimous consent from holders to amend terms and conditions to change reference rates. That means that to date, there's been more scope for active transition by way of consent solicitations under English law than under US law. 
So the LIBOR Act is intended to assist with the transition of these tough legacy bonds in the US. The other point to make is in relation to sterling and yen LIBOR transition and to draw a distinction with the US dollar LIBOR transition. We've already seen the FCA direct the publication of sterling and yen synthetic LIBOR. These synthetic rates applied to relevant contracts irrespective of governing law. This is because there were no separate solutions under other laws for sterling or yen LIBOR bonds. This is different to synthetic US dollar LIBOR given the enactment of the LIBOR Act in the US for US law governed contracts. So let's turn now to the US dollar LIBOR transition and we'll discuss the US LIBOR Act. The LIBOR Act, or to give it its full name, the Adjustable Interest Rate LIBOR Act, is US federal legislation which was enacted in March 2022 to provide a contract override solution for legacy contracts governed by US law that reference US dollar LIBOR and which contain no or unworkable fallbacks. For these contracts, references to US dollar LIBOR are permanently replaced by operation of law with the benchmark replacement rate selected by the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System pursuant to the LIBOR Act implementing regulations, known as the final rule. The final rule became effective on the 27th of February 2023 and sets out replacement rates for different categories of LIBOR contracts. For floating rate notes, the replacement rate is the sum of the term SOFRA reference rate produced by CME, plus the spread adjustment specified in the LIBOR Act for the corresponding settings, which are identical to the ISDA fixed spread adjustments. The LIBOR Act replacement rate is the same as synthetic US dollar LIBOR. The LIBOR Act provides a safe harbour against liability for contracts which move by operation of law to the statutory replacement rate. That safe harbour also covers conforming changes to the terms of the LIBOR contract within the meaning of the LIBOR Act. Now let's talk about scope. The LIBOR Act applies to contracts with no or unworkable fallbacks, as I've already said, and those which reference overnight one, three, six and 12 month US dollar LIBOR settings. So that's wider than synthetic LIBOR, which is only being published for one, three and six month settings. The Act does not apply where a contract has clearly defined and workable fallbacks providing for a replacement rate. This includes both contracts with hardwired fallbacks going to a specified replacement rate, such as ARC recommended rates or another specified rate, and contracts with fallbacks allowing for the selection of a replacement rate by a determining person where that determining person selects a benchmark replacement other than the board selected replacement rate. So, for example, that could be the prime rate. It is worth noting here that our understanding is that in the US FRM market, it's not common to have a fallback to prime or to cost of funds. Those are traditionally fallbacks that you see more in the US loan market. So although a contract with a determining person fallback may be out of scope, the LIBOR Act does provide that a determining person can select the board selected replacement rate, and that would bring the contract within the scope of the LIBOR Act, including its safe harbor. Similarly, the LIBOR Act also applies if a determining person made no selection by the LIBOR replacement date, so the first London banking date after the 30th of June, that's the 3rd of July, and such contracts will therefore also have moved on to the statutory replacement rate under the Act. We also want to briefly mention the LIBOR Legacy Playbook, because that discusses the interaction between the LIBOR Act and synthetic US dollar LIBOR although the playbook does date back to July of last year, and that was before the final rule was published by the Fed. 
The playbook is helpful in that it encourages participants to conduct a thorough assessment of their LIBOR contracts so as to identify the applicable trigger events, fallback rates and governing law. So quickly taking each of those in turn, in terms of trigger events, participants should check if there is a pre-cessation trigger which renders synthetic LIBOR irrelevant because it's determined by the FCA to be unrepresentative or if the fallbacks are triggered by actual cessation only meaning that synthetic LIBOR could potentially apply for as long as it's published. Moving on to look at fallback rates, the playbook identifies different types of fallbacks providing for either a hardwired SOFA rate such as pursuant to the ARC recommended fallbacks language or another hardwired non-LIBOR rate, or a determining person fallback, giving that person the power to select a replacement rate, or no fallback language at all, or fallback language referring to a LIBOR rate or to a dealer poll on interbank rates. So those are contracts which contain no fallbacks or type one equivalent unworkable fallbacks. Finally, the playbook notes that participants should check which governing law applies. US or foreign law, so EU law, English law, another law, because as I've mentioned earlier, this will have an impact on whether synthetic LIBOR is relevant or not. I'm now going to hand over to Patricia, who is a senior PSL in the Allen & Overy International Capital Markets know-how and training team, and she's going to cover what all of this means in practice for US law governed FRNs. Thanks, Amanda. So how are US dollar libel bonds governed by US laws expected to transition in practice, bearing in mind the LIBOR Act and its interaction with synthetic libel. So I'm going to be looking first at US law governed floating rate notes with no fallbacks or with unworkable fallbacks being equivalent to type ones under English law. Now, the expectation here is that the LIBOR Act will apply to such bonds, resulting in the permanent application of the board selected replacement rate which is mentioned by Amanda, is the same as synthetic US dollar LIBOR. Now, it's worth noting here, though, that under the LIBOR Act, the replacement rate will apply permanently, whereas where synthetic US dollar LIBOR applies to English law type one notes, the synthetic rate will apply for a limited period only. Turning next to US law governed FRNs with ARC recommended fallbacks, which will have a pre-cessation trigger. Now, these floating rate notes are outside the scope of the LIBOR Act and have fallbacks which should operate as contractually intended without being affected by synthetic US dollar LIBOR. And that's because of the inclusion of the pre-cessation trigger. Now, this is comparable to how type three contracts under English or other laws will operate. Now, our understanding is that most of the outstanding floating rate notes under US law are expected to fall into one of these two categories I've just mentioned. There is, however, a residual category, which we understand is not expected to be significant, made up of US law governed floating rate notes with workable fallbacks, which do not include a pre-cessation trigger, so equivalent to type twos under English law. Now, these include, for example, floating rate notes that identify a specific non-liable replacement rate, which could be prime. Now, these FRNs may potentially have moved to synthetic US dollar LIBOR. This is because they are outside the scope of the LIBOR Act in view of the workable fallbacks, yet the fallbacks are only triggered on actual cessation and so after the end of publication of synthetic US dollar LIBOR in um, September 2024. 
Now, there's one final point I'd like to make on the LIBOR Act before turning to the transition of LIBOR bonds in the EU. And that's in relation to the US dollar LIBOR ICE swap rates. Now, these are rates which were formerly known as ISDAFIX and sometimes referred to as CMS or constant maturity swap rates. Now, these rates also ceased permanently on the 30th of June. Now, the LIBOR Act does not cover contracts which reference US dollar LIBOR ICE swap rates. This means that there's no statutory override solution to provide for the automatic application of a replacement rate in the case of such contracts. These contracts will instead require contractual solutions. Now, these will clearly depend on the fallback provisions which are included in the relevant contracts. To assist with this, the ARC has published recommendations for contracts linked to the US dollar LIBOR ICE swap rate. and. These recommendations include a suggested fallback formula for determining a successor rate, which could be used, for example, where fallbacks provide for calculation agent determination of a successor rate. Now, I think that concludes um, what we wanted to say on US law governed bonds, and I'll now quickly turn to the relationship between synthetic US dollar LIBOR and US dollar LIBOR bonds governed by EU laws. First, however, I want to make a general observation on the application of synthetic LIBOR. Now, leaving aside the US and the effects of the LIBOR Act on US contracts, from the 1st of July 2023, in the absence of a pre-cessation trigger, a reference to US dollar LIBOR in any contract now means synthetic US dollar LIBOR. Now, this is clearly subject to the application of any statutory override solution, such as the LIBOR Act in the States. But we are not aware that similar statutory solutions have been implemented elsewhere, although there are statutory replacement powers available in the EU under the EU benchmarks regulation. So looking now at the EU, the European Commission has indicated that it doesn't intend to use the statutory replacement powers under the EU benchmarks regulation, and that's because of the decision of the FCA to compel the publication of synthetic US dollar LIBOR until the 30th of September 2024. Now, in practice, this means that any US dollar LIBOR contract governed by a law of an EU state may move to synthetic US dollar LIBOR for as long as it's available, depending on the type of fallback included in the relevant contract. So if it has type 1 equivalent fallbacks or type 2 equivalent fallbacks. Just to note, however, that we understand there to be very few tough legacy US dollar LIBOR bonds governed by EU laws. That brings us to the end of our segment. I will now hand over to Neil Palander, who will talk about some operational challenges with LIBOR transition. Thank you. Hello, I'm Neil Palander of Linklaters, uh, and I'm going to speak to you today about the operational considerations of US dollar LIBOR transition. So starting with some positive news, generally speaking, it is expected that the operational challenges of US dollar IBOR transition are expected to overlap with those experienced in the sterling market. So the following is a high level refresher of some of the key operational matters which have arisen through that experience and how they might apply in the US dollar context. So the first piece I'll talk about is type one fallbacks and dealer polling. 
Um, when researching for this podcast, um, I decided to ask uh, ChatGPT for its description of a dealer poll, uh, and that runs as follows. Reference bank polls, also known as dealer polls, are surveys conducted amongst banks to determine reference rates, such as LIBOR, that serve as benchmarks for various financial instruments. I then asked ChatGPT to summarize some common issues associated with dealer polls, and it gave the following answer. The issues commonly associated with dealer polls include potential manipulation, collusion, lack of transparency, and subjectivity, which can lead to inaccurate benchmark rates and undermine market confidence. So definitely a convincing answer, but it doesn't feel like we're all going to be out of work anytime soon. So what are the real world limitations of dealer polls in the Eurobond market? Well, firstly, they were designed for temporary rather than permanent cessation of eyeball. As a result, they're often not drafted with the degree of completeness needed for them to be operated at a practical level, thereby leaving agents in a very difficult position as to how such fallbacks should be operated in the absence of contractual or regulatory guidance. But critically, the central tenet of a type one fallback is that reference banks provide quotations from which a fallback rate can be calculated. Yet the fact reference banks are unwilling to give quotations is the primary reason why LIBOR itself is being discontinued. So in the UK, the publication of one, three and six month US dollar LIBOR as supported by the application of the Critical Benchmarks Act will significantly mitigate the instances where type one fallbacks are activated. But as synthetic US dollar LIBOR is temporary, it's not impossible that type one fallbacks may become relevant again in the future, particularly if it is not possible to transition the much larger volume of US dollar LIBOR legacy contracts by the proposed end date of synthetic US dollar LIBOR, that being the 30th of September, 2024. So moving now on to type two and three fallbacks and new RFR issuances. So for type two and three fallbacks, from an operational standpoint at least, the focus shifts from the existing fallback wording to the implementation of the new RFR, in particular transitioning from a forward-looking to, most often, a backward-looking interest rate determination environment. As ever, specific contractual drafting will be key, but in the general, the sterling market has seen the use of an observation period during which interest will be determined for a particular interest period. The same general mechanic is also true of the US dollar market, although for various reasons, term software is also being used. So the number of days by which the observation period is offset vis-a-vis -vis the interest period, which is often defined as P in MTN and covered bond programs, is important from an operational standpoint for a variety of reasons. And to ensure that agents have sufficient time to make the necessary calculations, to theoretically at least apply any fallbacks, uh, to confirm calculations match those of any issuers or other third-party agents, and critically to settle the final rates and amounts in good time to pre-advise the ICSDs. In this context, the broad market consensus with which most stakeholders become comfortable and which is actually recommended by the ICSDs is for the look-back period to be five business days. That said, other acceptable formulations might include a proviso that the look-back period can be less than five business days with the relevant agent's consent. In any case, however, three business days should be considered as a hard stop due to the requirement for the common depository 
to pre-advise the ICSDs at close of business on that day. This pre-advised timing applies regardless of the product, whether it's commercial paper, structured notes, vanilla bond, ABS, or anything else. And so any related swaps may need to be amended to follow the bond market timings and calculations. And it's on that point of pre-advice um, that it becomes more interesting when one considers issuances cleared through DTC. In particular, timelines are likely to be more compressed for DTC cleared issuances. So it may not be possible, for instance, for the terms of a DTC cleared software instrument to be replicated fully when clearing through the ICSDs. So an early dialogue with the agents and the ICSDs regarding any such proposals is encouraged in order to eliminate execution and settlement risk, such as the risk of late payments to holders through the ICSDs. And finally, for this section, it's worth mentioning that whilst the use of type two and three fallbacks was a positive development for the market generally, it developed very organically. So there isn't a consistent standard form provision across the industry, meaning that the drafting of each provision is critical. In particular, from an operational standpoint, agents will need to be comfortable that once the successor or alternative rate has been determined, together with any applicable benchmark amendments and or adjustment spread, they are able to operate those provisions in practice. This is particularly the case where the issuer or an independent advisor has a wide discretion when making those determinations. So moving on from type two, three fallbacks to consider the use and availability of advisors and, and calculation agents. In this sense, it's important to contrast between, firstly, a basic straw man calculation agent whose sole role is to make mathematical calculations based on specified source data. Um, on, on a, secondly, a commercially incentivized calculation agent under, for example, a swap. And then thirdly, a third party independent advisor appointed in the context of, for example, type two and three fallback determinations that we've just discussed. All three of those agents or advisors perform very different roles. So it's important for bond issuers to both, one, understand and appreciate the difference between those roles to help ensure a smooth eyeball transition program. And secondly, to ensure that its agents and advisors are aligned when making determinations in the context of eyeball transition. In particular, care must be taken to avoid potential mismatches between FRNs and any related swap transaction where that mismatch arises solely as a consequence of LIBOR transition, whether that be by reason of different fallback cascades, the absence of effective fallbacks, or the adherence to ISDA's IBOR's fallbacks protocol or the 2018 benchmark supplement. A final note here regarding the availability of advisors. Experience to date, certainly in the sterling market, has been that there are a limited number of institutions in the market who actually perform this independent advisor role. That may well cause a pressure point in the US dollar market, uh, given the volumes of, uh, of trades which need to be transitioned. That said, in the context of sterling LIBOR transition, there are no known instances where an issuer hasn't been able to appoint such an advisor. So the final topic I'll talk about today is consent solicitations. So Julia covered earlier the headline concerns and issues with the consent solicitation process, but I wanted to add a few operational matters to those. So firstly, it's important that corporate actions are set up properly in the ICSDs and that correct information is provided to agents and ICSDs to enable a consent process to be properly launched in a timely manner. 
once launched, it is quite possible that there will be natural delays through the ICSDs. So given the multi-layered custody structure of how investors typically hold eurobonds through the ICSDs, it could be four or maybe five business days before the end holder receives notice of a corporate action, which could significantly affect their ability to either vote within applicable timeframes or particularly in the context of any expedited transaction timelines, their ability to vote at all. It's also worth bearing in mind that there seems to be a substantial variation in the responsiveness and efficacy of certain custodians within the custody chain, which has the potential to cause further delays. So finally, a quick reminder regarding written resolution. So where an issuer wishes to affect eyeball transition through a use of a written resolution, it is critical that the proof of holding provided by the underlying note holders to the trustee satisfies the trustee's requirements, both of course in terms of the substantive content of the proof of holding, but also the timing for when it is provided. It's critical that the proof of holding is provided on the same date as the written resolution. So an early dialogue between the holders, their custodians and the trustee is very much recommended possibly including a dry run of head ahead of time. So that brings me to the end of my section. Um, much, if not all of what I've said today is covered in more detail in a series of bulletins, which are drafted by the IBORS working group of the ICMSA. I would encourage you to head to the ICMSA's website for further detail and information. But for now, I shall hand back to Paul Richards. Thank you to Catherine Wade of Linklaters, Julia Machin of Clifford Chance, Marcus McKenzie of Freshfields, Amanda Thomas and Patrizia Pascolini of Allen and Overy, and Neil Palander of Linklaters. We at ICMA are very grateful to you all for your contributions. This concludes the podcast. Thank you for listening. For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website, icmagroup.org.